from the journalist Richard Spencer's Ukraine Diary, published in The Times. April 27th. In addition to Kyiv, the Russians have given up on trying to encircle Ukraine's second city. They have not stopped shelling it, however. I've been warned of unimaginable destruction, but that is not really accurate. It's just that there are holes all over the place where Grad and other missiles have landed, apparently at random. Shops, churches, theatres, office blocks and thousands of residential apartment buildings. Unimaginable destruction of Mosul, for example, or Aleppo, actually makes tactical military sense, whether morally defensible or not. You can take a city by levelling it, but the daily shelling here has only one purpose, which is to demoralise the population, who have no idea how long they will have to live in basements and the metro station. Kharkiv is Ukraine's most Soviet-looking city. All high-rises, factories and modernist concrete public buildings. Most of its residents are Russian speakers, but many are now brushing up their Ukrainian. I'm Richard Spencer. I'm Middle East correspondent for the Times of London newspaper. But uh, I've recently uh, taken to reporting from Ukraine from the uh, ongoing war there. Yeah, so I've uh, I've been to both the Kharkiv metro and the Kiev metro. I was in the Kiev metro uh, in Ukraine on my first trip there uh, about six weeks ago. Um, there were quite a few people there then, but the immediate danger in Kiev was passing. So people had started to come out of the metro stations. Uh, so I, yes, I went to the uh, Kharkiv uh, metro about a week ago now, and uh, it was very striking. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people hiding out there in one of the stations, uh, the station that's closest to the area that's being most heavily uh, shelled at the moment in northeast uh, Kharkiv. Uh, and yes, people have been there for, you know, since February the 24th, so for more than two months. I was lucky enough to be able to speak to Richard this week on his return from Ukraine, and I asked him all about conditions down in the Kharkiv metro. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that that was a feature of Britain's Cold War planning, using our underground stations as a nuclear shelter, a feature which was um, considered and ditched. Not so in the Soviet Union, however, who often built particularly grand, enormous and deep metro stations, which could double up in time of nuclear conflict as shelters for the population. And now those former Soviet stations in Ukraine are being used for that dreadful purpose. And so I spoke to Richard about what it's like down there for the civilians sheltering in the Kharkiv metro. I asked him what it looks like down there, what it smells like, what the atmosphere is like. Is there any tension between the people? Does anyone have a sing-song as they did in London during the Blitz? And people have taken their cats and dogs down there. How are the pets faring in that strange environment? How are people being fed? How do they wash? So let's jump into the interview. A lot of my research on uh, living in bomb shelters, of course, has been taken from the Blitz, because, of course, obviously it's never happened in this country after the Blitz, thank God. So I know that during the Blitz, there were lots of concerns from uh, public health officials about what they called shelter colds and shelter diseases. So 
is that still it? I know that might sound relatively trivial given what's happening above ground, but down in the metro with all those people crowded together, is there a concern still about COVID or about ordinary colds and flus? Is, does anyone have the spare energy to worry about that? Uh, the answer to that, I think in short, is pretty much no. Uh, I, I was quite struck when I arrived in Ukraine about how, I mean, nobody was taking any notice of COVID at all. And in fact, on my first trip, um, there were quite a lot of cases of COVID around in, in Kiev um, and quite a lot of colleagues in, in Kiev journalists who who'd pitched up there like me uh, ended up with COVID. Uh, um, one colleague was stuck in Lviv for 10 days because he diagnosed with COVID and obviously couldn't leave and, and isolated in a hotel room in Lviv for 10 days. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much the case now. That, that was a wave which has now passed apparently. Um, in the Kharkiv metro, people, I think they were worried about hygiene. Um, you know, as you can imagine, 800 people crammed into a, into a metro station where there had actually been, you know, twice as many as that a, a couple of weeks before, um, you know, does present hygiene problems. Uh, they don't have um, great um, toilet facilities or certainly no sort of, you know, banks of showers or bathrooms as such. Uh, so there was a bit of concern. And, and of course, the other thing about it is that a lot of the people down there are elderly uh, you know, the as, as we know right from the beginning of the conflict, uh, the younger women and children tended to leave uh, either for Western Ukraine where it was safer or, or leave the country altogether. Uh, the, the young men couldn't leave and many of them obviously were called up or were in the army or were, you know, had to stay in the country. Uh, the people who wanted to stay, of course, tend to be the older people who you know, they just say, well, you know, we've lived through quite a lot and we're not going to we're not going to leave our homes uh, or at least not abandon them completely. So so there was a very heavy preponderance of particularly elderly ladies in in, in the underground. And uh, so I think people were quite concerned about health issues generally, not but not specifically COVID or, you know, respiratory diseases as such. OK, uh, and speaking about hygiene, um, I assume it's the only toilet facilities are just the the ordinary station toilet and um, there's been no other facilities installed of course they, they wouldn't have the time or the capacity to do that so is it one toilet for hundreds yeah i mean there's there's luckily there's more than one toilet i, I think there are a couple of um you know public toilets there but yes pretty much so so people are going to wash in the bathrooms uh, in the in the toilets yeah um i think one or two of the metro stations do have um shower facilities but only very small and basic and you know you know um staff showers being made available for for use uh the one the one that i was in didn't um you know it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience but it wasn't terrible either it wasn't it didn't stink of sewage it didn't stink of you know over, you know overwhelmingly unpleasant you know it could have been worse it sounds patronizing to say self-discipline i think there was a lot of uh the people were, were, were you know trying to take as good care as possible of themselves and of their, you know, environment in the rather difficult uh, situation that was there. Okay. And um, what about cooking? How do you warm food or drink? Right. So, uh, you know, one quite, uh, you know, consolation of this terrible experience that people in, the, in Ukraine are having uh, is uh, a very strong spirit blitz spirit if you like is is very is very noticeable there and uh there are huge numbers of volunteer groups have been got up all over the country to doing everything from 
know, slightly things we think of as slightly crazy, like sort of crowdfunding military equipment, right down to, you know, organizing groups to go and checking check on the grannies who are still there whose families have, have left. And so there so food in the metros is fine because there are volunteer groups who go and serve food and three times a day it feels very Soviet. It's sort of pictures from my childhood of what the Soviet bloc was like in our imagination. You know, elderly people queuing up in these overcoats and blankets and woolly hats um, to, you know, to get their bowl of gruel. You know, uh, it was a bit like that. But but on the other hand, you know, they were being fed nutritious food every day, three times a day from a table um, just outside the ticket hall. I mean, it, it, it's as, it is as blunt as that. You know, people come in and, and set up. Okay, so with people big, with big vats of stew, you know. Oh, brilliant! Okay, so um, voluntary organisations are bringing f- hot food in, um, but yeah. I assume people also bring in any rations or food that they can themselves. Or indeed, that's another thing: do people go above ground each day, or do they just stay down there? Yeah, so that's a that's a very interesting question. You know, that's something that you know when I I mean I knew that people stayed in the metro, and I and of course, as you say, we, we all have pictures in our heads from the Blitz and. And I knew that this is what um, was a one of the reasons why um, the Soviet Union built such grand and deep metros. What was to, with this in mind? But I never kind of thought until I actually went down there. Well, how do they, you know what what do people do? do? They just stay here all day? Do they? Is it just at night time? Well, what's the point of that? If they're getting you know the, there's the shelling in the in the northeast quadrant of of Kharkiv is fairly random. You know, I mean, a shell landed kilometer down the road from from where I was just as I was going in you know just as three o'clock in the afternoon the first time I visited so there's not much point in going down there and just just for sort of like eight seven hours overnight actually if you want to if you're if you're really risk averse and what I found was that some people uh, did stay down there pretty much 24 hours but what a lot of people told me was that there tended to be a lull in the shelling in the early in the early morning so between they'd noticed that for reasons nobody could particularly fathom there wasn't much shelling um between six and nine in the morning so people would come out go for a walk often go to visit their apartment to see if it had survived the night and as you say then they could pick up supplies so most of the shops in that area are not open um, and certainly you know, no restaurants or takeaways uh, in in that part of town are, are, are open but of course you could you know go and get yourself a tin of beans from your store cupboard if you wanted to um, but mainly they were going just to to check on their flat you know water the plants change of clothes maybe maybe have a shower if their bathrooms are still working but you know the, the say the, the apartment was getting pummeled there so you know, pretty much every block had a big hole in it where having been hit by a shell. So the electricity wasn't working in most of the blocks. Okay. Um, but you could go and, you know, have a change and get a change of scenery, go for a little walk, and uh, then they'd go back down again. Okay. So the only source of food then for people in the metro will be the, what the volunteers bring in or what you can get from your own stockpile at home. There's no shops at all that would have food for you. I mean, there are shops, but I mean, I mean, again, you know, the, the shops in the immediate area were not open. I, I mean, the metro station I went to in this uh, street called um, Hello Platzi, um, you know, Heroes of Labour Street Metro, I say very Soviet. And the um, it actually has a big marketplace um, on the street above the metro station that had taken a direct hit. So completely mm-hmm. burnt out and. If you wanted to get supplies or do something, obviously you could, you know, call a friend from another part of the city. They could come pick you up. You could go to another part of the city where supermarkets were open and go back if you, or if you wanted to get out. But as I say, most people 
were kind of there because they were stuck there. And obviously, you know, if they could go to a safer part of the city and hang out there, they probably would have done anyway. Okay, okay. Um, now, this uh, window that you talked about, Richard, where you might be able to go above ground, uh, I assume there were cats and dogs down there. So was that when dogs would be walked above ground? Yeah, and you'd say the second time I went, I went early in the morning to, to um, sort of get a feel for it then. And I arrived around 7.30, 8 o'clock. And yeah, there were people... Um, you know, taking the dogs for a walk. Actually, sort of one of the curious scenes is uh, in the, so you go, if you go down into the metro, you know, you go past the ticket office where you go past where they serve the food and you, there's a little police station there in the, in the metro, which is where you, they check your papers and stuff or your passport or your ID. Um, and then just at the end of that, there's this big sort of like thing, you know, sort of construction of wooden pallets. And I and uh, just a guy I was with said, "Come and have a look in here." In it, it was the most enormous dog I've ever seen. I mean, it looked like a lion. It was it was the kind of the size of a small lion, <laughs> and same sort of golden hair. I mean, I mean, I have no, I'm not a dog, I'm not a dog person, but it was some weird mongrel specimen of monster dog, um, <laughs> just there with this massive like, uh, face on and massive bowl that was being fed it, and. Um, uh, and it was kind of quite extraordinary. And then next morning when I went, it was we saw it being walked around the, the square, you know, where this thing had been bombed out, um, being taken for its obviously morning constitutional. Yeah. Right. So it was living, is it up at the ticket hall, you said? Is that where, the, where they built a den for it? Or? Yeah, exactly. They built right. a sort of small, like, sort of cage stroke den for it. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So I assume um, he wasn't particularly welcomed down on the platforms, or maybe. No, I think, I think, I think. I mean, it was scared. I mean, it was bigger than quite a few of the children on the platform. <laughs> oh dear. So okay. Like, but there, but um, apart from that, there were lots of you know lots of pets. I mean, particularly cats. I mean, I, I think it's a. I would say it's a cat city, judging by my 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 initial impression. Um, lots of. Lots of um, cat ladies down there with 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 cat, or, or they um they uh, you know they put, brought their cat basket and put weights in the cat basket and then they've um, tied string to the cat's leg and tied it to the cat basket so the cat can sort of go round and round in a circle but not escape. That's a shame. Um, and can you tell me how uh, I'm a I'm a dog lover. My dog's lying down here. I'm at my feet. Can you please tell me how did. Oh, I don't know if you know if you were there during a heavy raid, but how do the pets react? Because again, thinking back to the Blitz, there were warnings that um, your dog might uh, panic under the sound of, of bombing and become a danger to himself or, or to you in the shelter. So if, if, the, if the sound of the shelling is audible and if it shakes the shelter, are the dogs and cats okay? Do they panic? They, they seem to be. I mean, I, um, I think, I mean, as you, as you know, they're, they, you know, they're kind of, these metro stations are very solidly constructed and underground. So, um, you know, there was another, the, the, so there was a shell landed just as I was, uh, uh, just before I went into the shelter once. And, and there was actually a shell landed, you know, about, I think, half a kilometre, kilometre away again when, when I was actually in there, which I didn't hear at all. It was only when I came out, I was told, oh, look, you know, there's been a shelling, you okay. smoke rise. And I didn't hear that at all. And it's it's not uh, the shelling is mostly artillery and grad missiles. If you um, and I'm sure you know the difference between at least in theory between what a artillery shell and a, and a grad missile does when it lands compared to say a 500 pound air fired missile, and that's that's when you get the shaking. And I didn't didn't experience that, and they're not using that very much. I mean, they have they had did do at the start of the conflict. 
but for whatever reason, either because they haven't got air superiority or they have taken notice of the, um, the, the fury of the rest of the world over the civilian casualty immediately and, and the, the, the appearance of bombing a, you know, a city like Kharkiv, which is a Russian-speaking, Soviet-built city in the modern age, to, to start using your air force and 500 pound bombs against that would yeah. will be a sort of one step up so it's mostly these these fair i mean you know i don't want to underplay it but these kind of quite light uh, artillery shelling so so you didn't get the feeling of, of of a you know this shaking that you talked about um i, I got the feeling that the pets were pretty used to their strange circumstances and maybe uh, they were you know you could tell that they were slightly uh, I hate to be anthropomorphized, but they looked a bit traumatized. Some of the animals as they're saying, what the hell is going on here? But they weren't skittish. They, a couple of the dogs were kind of doing that walking around in circles thing that uh, that dogs do when they're um not when they're not sort of distressed as in barking, but sort of slightly mm-hmm. confused and you know, say what the hell is going on here type yeah, thing. Yeah, um, first things. I just know that one of my most distressing podcast episodes is about um an RSPCA booklet that was released in Britain in the 50s about how to look after your pet and calm your pet during an air attack. And then towards the back of the booklet, after the nice stuff about calming him and soothing him, was um, how to kill him, how to humanely kill your pet. So it's um, it's a subject, because I've got my dog here, it's a subject that just horrifies. We then moved on to talking about gaining access to the shelter. I remembered visiting a nuclear bunker in Prague a few years ago, where entry was via a tall, narrow spiral staircase. And my tour guide told me that you would gain access to that shelter um, simply by running there. The idea was when you hear the siren, you make your way to the nearest shelter. And in this case, you would have to crowd your way down this narrow spiral staircase, which of course seems like a recipe for a disaster for uh, for one person to slip on that spiral staircase. It could easily cause a crush. And of course we think back to the terrible Bethnal Green disaster in London during the Blitz. So I had intended to ask Richard, how do civilians gain access to the shelter space in the stations? But of course, there'll be no question of everyone rushing there on hearing the siren and there being a potential panic because, as Richard has told us, people enter the station and they tend to stay there. Again, it's not like during the Blitz where you would re-emerge in the morning and go about your day and head back down there at night. So I asked generally about access. Um, how is space allocated and can anyone enter? And what about the very coveted spaces sleeping on the train carriages which are stationed there uh, the impression i got that it was was that there were kind of two tiers so so if you go into the metro so you've got the ticket hall and the you know the the under the corridor bits uh, that you you know that you'll be going into and out of the metro and then and then i say you've got this you pass the table where they're serving the food and then on the left you've got this police station a little mini police station and then on the right you've got the um the gates down into the actual station and so you go down you know a couple of steps and you've got the ticket barriers and then you go down a whole flight of steps and you're on the platform and um so that's where people are living full-time and it's like a little 
colony is like a you know it's a campsite basically you, people have set up it's their places they've set up they say they've set up some of them people have tents some of the people have set up little sort of like their own little sitting room with cardboard boxes or pallets um, they've got they've got their mattresses and sleeping bags that they brought down and um you know it's, they, they, that's their that's their home and if they want to go it's kind of you know the the, co- the code of honor of towels on the sun loungers i guess that you know once once you've got your place no one's going to take it and you can go and spend your you know go off for your walk in the morning and come back and it'll, you'll still have your place and the best places are in the train carriages so so there's on one one of the tracks there is a train carriage in the station with the doors open and obviously that's i think that's kind of your numero uno luxury suite if you like um because you get a bit more privacy there and and you away from the lights because the lights are on all 24 hours a day and then then the the places on the actual platform they seem to be quite sought after and then people sleeping by the ticket barriers and clearly the worst places are actually on the steps but quite a few people are sort of living on the actual steps um, and there are places there for for more people to get in so um, I think if there were if there were really heavy raid you could probably fit you know quite a lot more people there maybe a thousand people and in crammed in and then you then you actually have the obviously the corridor in as well so which would offer you that's not so much protection but still quite a lot of protection okay and um, the more coveted spaces um, on the carriages for example are they given to the elderly or women with children I think it was uh, my guess it was first come first serve there right. does there do seem to be more families though so maybe they maybe they I, I didn't ask actually but maybe okay. they uh Maybe maybe people with kids were allowed were were given priority there. Um, okay. Um, is there someone? Sorry, the police station you mentioned, uh, Richard. Is that a new thing because of the the war, or has there always been a police? No, I think they presence? have. They, they they do have police stations in metros. I, I I don't know if all of them do, but I think this was a permanent police. You know, with sort of three or four cops on duty at any one time. Um, okay. And I'd say they were, you know, new people arriving. They were coming out, out and saying you know let's look at your passport who are you what are you doing here and uh yeah i think just to so they had a sort of eye on things really okay uh what else do i have oh um entertainment is there any kind of organized entertainment or is that a nice um jolly image we have from the blitz of everyone singing roll out the barrel yeah no i didn't notice any 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 entertainment i didn't notice people were you know they weren't i don't know what's the what's the word that um yeah there was a certain element of um uh, Stockholm syndrome, I think, um, if that's not too grand a term. You know, there were quite a few people who seemed to quite got used to it, and you know, they were sitting and chatting and knitting, and and you know, it's almost like a sort of little sort of cozy womb-like atmosphere for some of the some of the people there. And I'd say this is a yeah, Kharkiv is a pretty poor city. It's 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 much less prosperous, visibly much less prosperous, say than Kiev or Lviv um, or Odessa. Um, it's very Soviet. Um, I think it's very close to the border. It's only twenty miles from the Russian border. I think it's had a it's probably had a bit of a rough time since uh, since I mean Ukraine's had a pretty rough time for the last century. But since the breakup of the Soviet Union, quite a few of the factories that made it was a very you know, say it was full of sort of military arms factories making it was stuff making precision tools and stuff for, for for the arms industry and it's quite a few of those seem to have closed not that you do feel the poverty there and uh, uh you do feel that it's uh it, people are pretty depressed about the long-term situation but okay in the short-term situation and and you feel that people people feel you know, quite grateful because they're getting three free meals a day and it's warm and and uh and not too bad conditions um, so you felt with some of the poorer 
pensioners they they were not too um they weren't too depressed the, the the families were very frustrated and you know wondering what to do and saying we can't you know they'd all gone down there i think it would last two or three days and then you know they were you know people were saying you know, i've been down here 62 days you know you know and you'll think oh well you're obviously keeping score and ticking it off but there was no organized entertainment and uh yeah no no sing-alongs or anything like that i'm afraid okay that's probably quite a naive question, but um, I just wondered if there was anything. No, like well, that. that's good. It's a good question. And uh, to other people, so I mean, other people, um, be, as always, the, the human experience in these things is very diverse. And one 26 year old um, was uh, who's a PhD student in um, in electronic engineering, I think, I, if I remember rightly. You know, he had his laptop there, and um, um, I don't know, he must have had a signal. I, I should have asked where he got his. No, the phones were working down there, so we'd have had 3G down there. Um, and uh, yeah, he said, oh, it was great because I, you know, I was really making me get down and do my um, do my thesis, you know, because I've got nothing else to do. So <laughs> there's no distractions. I could just sit here, you know, all day, 24 hours a day writing my thesis. Um, another thing which has occurred to me, um, Richard, um, during the, the war, each shelter had like a shelter warden who was in charge of, you know, keeping order, organising things. Is there anything like that? Is there any, even informally, someone who is in charge or is the unofficial boss or manager of the shelter? No, not formally, but yes, in practice, in that it, was, it wasn't just an impromptu thing. It, you know, it was the city council saying, use the metros. And so there were... Um, people from the city council coming around and checking everything was okay, you know, checking the sanitation and all those things. And then, then of course, we had the police station with cops there, and you also had these volunteers and nurses and health people coming around. So there's always, it, it, so there, there wasn't like a, you know, self-appointed Mrs. Marple sort of busybody <laughs> person who'd taken control. But there were always kind of authority figures is probably the wrong word, but semi-authority figures around, you know, who who you could go to or who could summon help or you know i say you know i mean not that there was any disorder at all i mean everyone was I mean, the kids were incredibly behaved i mean i you know i mean I, I mean i wouldn't have liked to have been there with my kids who i loved dearly and everything but the thought of being there for two months with my kids when they were toddlers i mean just fills me with horror but these kids were all sort of very stoic and um they, they were mainly elderly people but the, the people who did have kids i was kind of um was kind of amazing how uh, how well behaved they were but so yes there's no disorder or anything um but if there were you they would say they were cops in the last resort one other thing which has just occurred to me now um you, you said that there's a train in the station which of course people use for sleeping are both sides of the platform occupied by trains or is one tunnel kept free in case there's an escape route needed that's a very good question, which I, I have to confess I hadn't thought of. I thought of. I mean, yeah. So one one side has a train, the other one doesn't. You have just got the tracks there. Um, it never occurred to me that it might have, that might be deliberate for a exit. I mean, I just assumed that the train going the other way had stopped somewhere else along the line. Yeah, it might but, be. Um, it's just my nuclear um, war brain is, is thinking yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. things like that. Um, is there anything I've missed that you'd like to to talk about, Richard? Um, let me just. Um, go through your questions again because i thought they were very good questions and, and very comprehensive um yeah so I, I mean i think the only thing to talk about really is 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 the atmosphere i mean you know it's, it's quite hard to describe until you've seen it um as you say i mean anything to do with with nuclear bunkers and you know apocalypse and 
you know, conjures up an image of something, you know, dystopian to use the overused word. And even though obviously it hasn't been a nuclear attack, um, it does feel very dystopian down there. It does feel, you know, if it, you know, the, your first glimpse, it is like a zombie movie. I mean, I, I mean, because you have these characters, particularly the elderly people, shuffle when it was, uh, we arrived just at the end of lunchtime and people were shuffling back to their places by the by the metro and these say these characters it's 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 spring but not quite warm if you know what i mean in in kharkiv at the moment and uh uh so you have these characters in their big slightly shabby overcoats or um shell suits that they've you know no one obviously no one's going to be dressed in their finest in this situation and you've got the sense that people have been wearing the same clothes for like you know a couple of months maybe <laughs> they're shuffling back to their uh, in this back to their places in in this very sort of you know yellow light because it's not a bright light and everything's very brown and off green and it just feels very uh dystopian and uh mm. um like some terrible thing has happened is that the ordinary metro lighting or have they got some kind of like evening light or no, i think it's the ordinary light? metro lighting right. but because it's so you know it's so full of people it kind of absorbs the light and ah uh, okay um okay. you know and there are no and, and the, the 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 to the extent that the walls and the floors are white um not in the underground itself but on the walls and on the in the area where the ticket barriers are that's all white but of course everyone's sleeping you can't see that because everyone's sleeping on the floors and you know there are things against the walls and people have put up you know their let's say these little tents and stuff against the walls so there's no reflect the, the reflection's gone so it, it must be much darker than it would normally be and okay. uh, much much i say much yellower and browner than it would normally be mm. um and then of course the other thing um which kind of adds to this soviet feeling of course it's a it's got you know these big busts of lenin all down the station um on, on the on the walls you know they, they what do you call those little plaques with um Mm-hmm. reliefs of, of Lenin all, all down the walls staring down on all these people it, it's it's like a you know it's this you know past future it's like it's, it's the dystopian future that I we were thinking about when I was a kid in the 80s you know sort mm-hmm. of Lenin the Soviet Union the apocalypse um the end of times and mm-hmm. people shuffling around in overcoats because everything else has gone you know it's it's that well, it really did feel like that uh-huh. The apocalypse, the end of times. We lend the interview there, and let me thank again Richard Spencer of The Times for speaking to us about conditions down in the Kharkiv metro. I hope you've enjoyed the past two episodes featuring guests talking to us about Ukraine, Russia, the nuclear threat, and I'm going to bring you some more. So please do subscribe so that you don't miss those. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And let me thank my two new patrons, Keith Derham and Darren Moan. If you want to support the podcast with a donation and get rewards like extra episodes, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And thank you all for listening.